Our sermon is based on Exodus chapter 34, verses 5 through 10. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. Lord, he said, if I have found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. Then the Lord said, I am making a covenant with you. Before all your people, I will do wonders never before done in any nation in all the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. This is God's word. There is nothing like a good will-you-take-me-back scene in a romantic comedy. You start watching the movie and you see these people, they find each other, and then after a while, usually somebody does something to, to mess it up. And, and it's probably, probably the guy that messes it up in the sight of the girl, let's be real here. And, and he cheats on her or he betrays her in some way. He, he does something that is just, just really egregious. And, and so you see them part ways for 20, 30, 40 minutes of the movie and, and they're living apart and they're both very, very sad. And then you get to this will you take me back moment when he approaches her with tears in his eyes saying, I just want you to take me back. And maybe you're at this point sitting on the edge of your seat as you're watching this movie at home and you want to say out loud, No! Don't do it. He's not a good guy. Don't say yes to this. Just walk away from him. She always takes him back. It's, it's where Moses actually found himself here, and you can, you can hear it in verse 9 when it says, Lord, he said, if I have found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. You see, what had happened is the people had, had slipped up, and they had slipped up big time. Moses had gone up the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, to receive the law from the Lord, and while he was gone, the people decided they were going to build a golden calf. They turned away from the God. They said, they said, you know what, that God has been with us for a little while, but, but it, it seems like that God isn't doing what he's supposed to be doing, so let's find a different God. It doesn't really matter all that much which God we're worshiping as long as we're worshiping a God. And so they have Aaron build the golden calf, and Moses comes back down, and you can imagine Moses is all too upset about what he sees, and he disciplines them. And yes, even, even some of them are, are put to death, and he goes back to God and, and you can almost hear the quivering in his voice when he knows, he knows exactly what God could say here. He could say, nope, I'm done with you. I'm done with your people. I'm not going to be your God and you're not going to be my people. That's it. And maybe from an outside look, we might say, yes, God, get him. Don't take him back. But Moses knows the circumstance in which he finds himself. Asking God to show nothing, nothing, nothing but mercy here. 
And that's what he's come to expect. Because he knows this God. He knows that this God had been with them as he had led them out of Egypt. He had seen the works of this God's hand. And, and then we get this refrain. This refrain that shows itself roughly seven times in the Old Testament that tells us exactly who God is and what God is all about. It speaks to, to our sermon theme today, the church God wants, one that really knows Jesus, one that really knows God. So listen closely as God talks about his name, his defining characteristics. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. This is the God that the people were called to follow. And as we get to to zoom in on this from thousands of years away, we go, how do you hear these words and not want to follow that God? Perfectly compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, gracious, and perfectly just in everything that he does. You are asking, can I please have the perfect leader in my life? We would all like to have somebody that's a leader in our lives that is perfect. And God is saying, I am going to be perfect. And not only am I going to be perfect, but I'm going to do it all in love and mercy, and compassion, and you hear these words and you go, why, Israelites? Why would you turn away from this God? Why are we about to see it happen over and over and over again that they say, compassionate and gracious, Lord, you know what? We don't need you here anymore. I would like a a God that's in charge of of fertility or a a God that's in charge of the harvest. I I don't need this compassionate and gracious, slow to anger God. I want want a different kind of God. But don't worry. I'm still going to worship a God. There's confusion. And that confusion leads these people to, to not want to follow the true God. Because up to this point, they had only seen what God had done. These people had seen what God had done in front of them, and now they hear this description of the Lord, and that's kind of all they have to go on. That's what's been revealed to them. And so over the course of years, you'll see them stop returning to these passages. They'll stop looking back and thinking about the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, and they'll start looking around for other gods. And you'll sort of see the, the, the promises of God slip through their fingers as they say, this God, this one is, he's not for me. And then that, that second part of, of verse 7 kind of comes into play, that, that, that part of verse 7 that, that hits our ears kind of wrong when it says, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. It hits the ears wrong. And so, so in order to kind of figure out what God is saying about himself here, let's, let's explore what that passage doesn't mean as well as what it does, does mean. First, this passage does not mean God is going to take the sin of the parents and place it on innocent children. It is not saying that he is going to take these, the sins of these parents and hold the children accountable for them arbitrarily. No, we see in Ezekiel chapter 18 that that's not how God operates. He says, the soul who sins is the one who will die. 
we realize that when God is dealing with sin, he's dealing with it on a very personal level. He's not dealing with people as a whole, but he deals with people as individuals. He does that in, in faith, and he does that in, in discipline. And so we know that, that this is not God arbitrarily taking punishment and putting it on the kids. But, but, but what is it? We hear in Exodus chapter 20, 14 chapters before this, this this sort of same formula is used, and you hear these words. Punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation, and then something is added to it. Of those who hate me. All of a sudden, that colors the picture in a little bit deeper, doesn't it? Hatred from the parents for God gets passed to down to the children, and from those children to the next children. And all of a sudden, generational hatred for God, displeasure with who God is, passes from one generation to the next. And maybe it's not even outright hatred. Maybe it's apathy. Yeah, we've got a God somewhere up there. I'm not really sure what he's all about, and it's not all that important. And if great-grandma and grandpa think that, then then the kids are going to think that. And the next kids are going to think that. And the next kids are going to think that. And there's almost this this chain that seems like it is never going to end as unbelief itself is passed down generationally. And you can imagine how God would say the sins of the fathers and mothers, the people that all started this, this cycle of unbelief, those have ramifications on the people in their lives. I want you to think of it this way. If you showed up here for the first time, and you met me as the pastor of the congregation, and you introduced yourself, and you gave me your name, and you introduced your family's name, and you said what you did for a living and where you were from, you might be willing to say, yeah, I'm not sure pastor's going to remember all of that for next week. And so next week, maybe you would patiently say, yes, I'm so-and-so, this is my family, here are my kids, this is what I do, and this is where I'm from. And so you would do that that second week and maybe that third week and you'd understand that, that there's a lot of names to know so, so maybe it's just going to take a little bit. But what if you would get to week number six and I still came up to you and I shook your hand and I said, and you are again? What about week 12 if I walked up to you after 12 times you explained to me who you were and where you were from and I said, I'm sorry, and you are again? You would either think your pastor who is able to memorize sermons but is somehow not able to memorize your name either has a brain tumor or he doesn't care about you. You're not important. Your attributes, who you are, your your, your personal life, your your everything is just not that important to your pastor and you would say, yeah, that that, that very much shows. You know, that that can be the same way that we, we treat God. No, it's not always that, that outright hatred, but sometimes do we show that God is, is not the most important thing by, by showing apathy. And that does have an effect on the people around us. It has an effect on the friends that we come in contact with. If God is not objective, if there are not objective truths about God and who he is and what he's done, and we say, you know what, it's all kind of mush and none of it really, really matters all that much. You just need to have this baseline faith and the rest of the, of the things that we know about God are not important, then what are we saying about God himself? Maybe God's not super important. It can maybe take the form of the the parent that says about their kids, well, I'm not going to push my faith on them. 
But then you look and you go, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, bounty and love and faithfulness. How would you not want to push this gracious Lord on everybody that you meet? Or maybe we might say, you know, Catholic, Baptist, Lutheran, none of it really matters. The disagreements are, are really nothing because we can all sort of have whatever opinion about, about Scripture that we want and, and, and nobody's really right. Well, what might that say to our, our friends? Maybe it sort of subliminally plants the idea that there is no objective truth in Scripture. And if there is no objective truth in Scripture, then what is Scripture other than a compilation of opinions? And if the Scriptures are a compilation of opinions, then, man, we're in trouble, aren't we? No, not wanting to know Jesus fully, richly, and deeply, it has consequences, not, not just for us, but for the people in our lives that we show, this doesn't matter that much. And so you can imagine that getting passed down from generation to generation, our, our actions having an effect on the people around us, the, the loved ones in our lives. But that's when we go back to the beginning and we remember which God it is that we are passing on. Which God it is that we are valuing so highly? Which God it is that we are saying there are objective truths about God that are unbreakable? I can name a few for you. The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God. If you believe God is not compassionate and gracious, then guess what? You got God wrong. You, if you believe he is not slow to anger or abounding in love and faithfulness, you've got God wrong. If you believe that he's not maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin fully and freely, then you've got God wrong. If you believe that God still doesn't hold people responsible for sins, if you believe that God doesn't care about sin, then you have God wrong. There are objective truths about God in Scripture. There are beautiful objective truths about God in Scripture. Because all of these things that we see about this God explained thousands of years before Jesus walked into this world, this is the same God that is made known fully and completely in what Christ has done. If you want to know where all of these things are, are, are seen, where God is showing compassion exactly, where he is showing his graciousness exactly. Look no further than in the life of Jesus. Look to Jesus and see his compassion as his heart breaks for the people around him. Look at Jesus as he graciously deals with people in a way that they totally and utterly do not deserve. Look to Jesus and see how he deals with tax collectors and prostitutes and says, I'm here for you. Look in Jesus and see how he's able to maintain love to thousands of generations as he says that I care about you and your children and your children after you. Look to Jesus and see how he is slow to anger as he hangs on the cross and the nails, of the, and the nails are being driven into his hand and he's still willing to say, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Look to Jesus and his faithfulness, his forgiveness, as he takes the sin off of our shoulders and puts it on his. Look and see how, how these verses from Exodus are fulfilled perfectly in Jesus when we see the wrath of God poured out not on you and me, but on Christ. And then he doesn't stop there. 
You know, it's almost like back when the, the Israelites were, were wandering through the wilderness, they got to see like the absolute top of an iceberg and the rest of, of God was underneath. They could see just a few things about God, but, but the water covered all of this, this ma- massive behemoth that God is. And so they didn't understand everything about God. You and I get to see so much more of that iceberg through Scripture. We get to see so much more of that iceberg in Christ as we see the fuller picture of who God is and how he interacts with us. We get to see him invite us into his word that is full of truth and grace and love and compassion and say every time you flip the page, you will hear these words uttered from my mouth. He invites you to experience his grace and compassion as as he calls you to the baptismal font, as he calls your children to the baptismal font and says, this is not a place where you give your life to me. This is a place where I give you new life now and forever. We experience the uh, graces of God. We get to know this compassionate and merciful God as we come forward to the communion rail and we take the true body and blood of Christ for something that goes beyond just remembering Jesus. But in that moment, Jesus remembers us and says, I remember your sin no more. Brothers and sisters, the the teachings about Jesus, his word, they matter so much because in the details of Scripture, In the details of who Jesus is, we find grace upon grace upon grace. A new gift for you every single page. Some people try to do this this thing of of journeying to self-discovery. Or maybe you've heard it this way better. They're working on themselves. And a lot of the times when people go and they work on themselves, do they look outward or do they look inward? It's pretty much always inward. They look at their lives and they try, to, they try to put the pieces of their heart back together. They try to find fulfillment from there and they put it there and that doesn't really fit together. And they try to find fulfillment from there and they put that there. That doesn't really fit. And as they look inward, they're missing something. And dear brothers and sisters, if you try to look inward to find your fulfillment, to find your belonging, to find your salvation, you're missing something. You are going to find a description of yourself that is far different than the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate, gracious God. But if you look outside of yourself, if you look at Christ, your King, who rules both body and soul, then you find those things brought together. You find fulfillment in Him, you find purpose, you find identity. And the deeper you search in the scriptures, the the, the more you care about it, the more you learn from what God has to say, not to just a group of people, but what he has to say to you personally. The more you dig into the scriptures, the more you learn about yourself, the more you, instead of work on yourself, the more God is able to work on you and call you what you are not. Perfect, holy, and lovable. Yes, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, knowing your Savior better every day, it is so important. Because your Savior has a lot to offer. He's got a lot of graces, grace tucked in the pages of his word. I invite you. You have a great and awesome God. Get to know him better. Amen.